Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is Brian Sutherland, who is the industry principal of commercial at Yardi. And I want to remind our listeners that once we're done our conversation with Brian, Adam and I are going to have a, a sort of an after show where we kind of digest the conversation and kind of give you our opinions. <laughs> and, you know, Brian, you'll appreciate that. It's better that we just let you talk during our interview with you, and then we'll do all the blabbing afterwards, right? So, Brian, thanks for joining. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. I think you're our, well, I think you're an American by birth, right? Is that fair? I think you I might am. be our, I think you might be our first American recording from the US on the podcast. We like to keep track of these really obscure guest <laughs> attributes. So, Brian, you know, why don't you jump into it? Tell us where you are first, and then maybe just go back to your background and lead into your current role with Yardi. Yeah, no, absolutely. I am on the podcast today from Santa Barbara, California. That's Yardi's headquarters. I am not working in the office, so working out of my bedroom where I've been spending uh, a ridiculous amount of time recently, <laughs> more hours than I choose to share sleeping and working two feet away from each other, which has been kind of a grind. In terms of my background, Grew up in Southern California, started my first company at 16 years old. It was actually an e-commerce startup. Had that company uh, until about 1998, where we were a commercial occupier. So had both retail space, industrial space across Southern California, Idaho as well, and ran five different e-commerce companies. So uh, there was another little startup that came along called Amazon.com. You may have heard of them, but they uh, they certainly shifted the marketplace. And I ended up selling my business, just got tired of going up against them head to head and uh, looked for a new career. And so with that, I actually ended up at, at Yardi Systems. I was brought in because I did business with Yardi. And so I owned a employment screening company as well. That was another one of my startups. And so came in on the residential side doing background checks for Yardi for employees that they're hiring within the Santa Barbara area. They were you know, one of the largest employers. And my role changed quite dramatically at Yardi and really started focusing on commercial. As Yardi defines commercial, it's office, industrial, retail. and Soon thereafter became, after managing a regional sales team, became industry principal. And so I've always been close to the product, whether it was you know doing web design and putting out e-commerce websites in my prior life or on the Yardi side, really you know working with clients, understanding what their needs were, and really directing where the future of the commercial product line at Yardi went. And so in my role, I oversee uh, sales and marketing, the teams that do all the deep dive demos, and really fortunate to work with a lot of our tier one clients across North America. So uh, certainly up in the Canadian region quite a bit, but you know, I would say cities I hit when we could travel would be New York, Toronto quite a bit. Those are the, the top two. But then up in Canada, Montreal, spent a lot of time there as well as Vancouver. As a Torontonian, I appreciate the compliment to my to my home city. I actually want to jump back to something you mentioned right at the start. And we had not planned on talking about this, but it would be interesting. And that's the Amazon effect. You know, you obviously experienced it firsthand. Uh, can you provide some context on timelines, you know, the, the weight of the Amazon effect on your business and, you know, the options you would have had at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. So they originally approached my e-commerce company as a uh, as a partner. So we had two, three-year deals with them where we were the exclusive seller. 
And so that worked out quite well. They then opened it up to really all sellers. And so what really happened from a from a retail standpoint was a race to the bottom. You could sell on Amazon, but to get listed, you would have to have the lowest price. And so my margins, quite frankly, were just getting squeezed and it turned highly competitive. The scale of their operations was just incredible. And I'd see it when we get certain listings on Amazon or feature product and we would go from say selling that particular SKU, maybe, you know, 24 in a given week to, you know, several hundred or seven thousand several thousand in a given week. And so it's just it's incredible the power of that enterprise. And I think a lot of it, you know, quite frankly, comes down to commercial real estate now as well and what they've done with, you know, last mile delivery and that e-commerce focus and what has ultimately turned it into all of this, the golden child of commercial real estate right now, which is industrial. And uh, you know, there's still being demand there. So I've seen it kind of on both sides as a retailer on their platform, the impact of it both positively and negatively. And I think within uh, commercial real estate, as it pertains to industrial and kind of hearing from our clients and seeing what they're thinking about and where they're investing capital. And a lot really is moving into that sector right now. You know, I think I find that fascinating. Not a lot of us kind of have the exposure to what it was like being kind of swallowed by the beast that is now, you know, obviously Amazon. Maybe let's jump in a little bit to like your current role. You gave us a quick synopsis. And of course, for our listeners, we did have Peter Altabelli on, you know, a colleague of Brian's, I don't know, I guess it was probably two or three months ago. And he did a really good job of kind of explaining kind of in detail the different products that are offered and the different services. But I think you know, Brian, just for contact for those that are listening right now, maybe just give us the elevator pitch of, you know, who is Yardy, what is Yardy, and what is your value to the, to the commercial real estate industry? Yeah, happy to. So Yardy, you know, I would start with saying we're privately owned. So Onnit Yardy, our founder and president, you know, founded the company in the early 80s. And so we've been in the industry for quite some time. He originally actually built the platform to operate his assets. And so he had some apartments, he needed to collect rent, and he had a development background. So he went into property management software. And so over the years, our solution stack has certainly evolved. We've grown with our clients. And now today, you know, 2020, have 7,000 employees, 45 offices, and have a very robust you know, solution stack, whether it's PHA affordable housing in the US, uh, government is another sector we serve, commercial, as I defined earlier, and then multifamily would certainly be a large asset class. As far as market penetration within the residential world, I would say we're about 55% of the market share. Within commercial, about 40%. And that's a global look. Obviously, you guys up in Canada, many more uh, folks that are actually on our platform operating and so certainly have penetrated that market well. So uh, yeah, that's a, a little bit of overview. I think what makes my role unique is just working with so many different clients across asset classes and different sizes as well different organizational structure for, you know, from REITs to institutional owners to, to mom and pop shops and, and really hearing what their challenges are and making sure that our you know, solution set is evolving with them and, and challenges evolve. And I think the last you know, four months are certainly reflect that. And you know, we've needed to change the way we do business and the way we service our, our clients and we'll continue to evolve. And so you know, during these times, I think opportunities come as well. But yeah, so that's a little bit of you know, a look into the Yardi organization. So that's probably a good jumping off point to get into just some of the meat of it. From your vantage point, you know, obviously your vantage point being the issues that your software best addresses and that have come to the forefront during COVID-19. What are you seeing in terms of your software's performance, you know, for tenant risk, future risk, some of the aspects that you would be going a much deeper dive in due to the software focus of what you do as compared to 
you know, a general real estate practitioner? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting during the pandemic, I will say one thing that I think has remained consistent is it's back to the basics, right? And as real estate operators, it's about collecting rent and how are we effectively doing that? You did mention, you know, tenant risk and kind of knowing your tenant. I think that's really come to the forefront. And with commercial, if we're, you know, running at 95, 98% occupancy, very strong rent roll, not a whole lot of risk in an up market what were the challenges, right? And I think a lot had to do with maybe where you're investing your capital, for example, what sort of asset classes made up your portfolio, what sort of capital projects you know, at the property were you going to put in to increase asset value, et cetera. So when I say it went back to the basics, really, who were your tenants, right? And where is your risk? And so really understanding this is our rent roll. Here's our asset classes. Here are the folks that are being most impacted by this pandemic. And so certain sectors were certainly hit more. And, you know, you can take the retail sector and outside of maybe essential business, anchor tenants, the mom and pops in the strip centers were heavily impacted. And so I think, you know, our customers at Yari really had to make an effort to understand the viability of the rent roll, if you will, the viability of their customers, understand what that risk was with them. Were they going to be eligible for a government loan? a Canadian government loan, a PPP loan in the U.S. And even with that, was that going to be a short-term Band-Aid to a long-term problem with the business that they're in? In industrial, it could have been tenants that were in the events industry and maybe were warehousing you know, lights and film equipment and you know, different things for live events, which live events you know, may not happen for another year. Who knows what the future really holds? And so understanding that and really what sort of risk is there from a revenue perspective? And really, you know, understanding we've got 1,500 tenants, what's the makeup of it? How's that going to really impact our business long-term? And I've never actually seen your software. I do apologize. Do you have in the current iteration, you know, risk weighting for different tenants? Can you apply a model that would show, for example, restaurants with a higher risk than, say, well, here in Ontario, the LCBO, but any liquor distribution, I think, across the continent is doing pretty well right now. Do you have models that put together different weighted averages in terms of risk associated with tenant types? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say by and large, outside of retail, there wasn't a lot of tenant risk before. So our platform had to evolve and had to evolve quickly. And I think it was really myself and uh, you know a number of others that Yardi really having conversations with large operators. You know, What sort of challenges are you having right now? What sort of information do you need to track? How are you tracking that? And what we saw immediately was a shift to Excel, right? The platforms that we're on aren't exposing this information. And so we've done a lot with risk ratings and having risk around collections, having legal statuses, having those you know, defined and being custom because there's so many different things that our clients were wanting to track around their tenants. And so that evolved quickly. And we jumped on that back in March. We made some modifications to our kind of core platform, as well as the solutions that sit around that, solutions around managing the actual leases or deal pipeline to really show that industry classification. And that's another thing, you know, industry classification was huge. And that could then define a a tenant risk. So if you're in food and beverage on ground floor, you might already be at risk and that sort of logic. 
So yeah, we certainly put that in and quickly. You know, I'll bring this full circle and then we'll move on. But, you know, you could almost just have like Amazon exposure risk, yes or no. You know, it's funny how we would focus in, in our business, you know, lenders are by nature a bit conservative. And so it was always really focused on, you know, the service oriented retail. Are they service oriented? And now you almost have to go one step further. Are they essential service oriented, right? Like, you know, right now, even a lot of those service oriented retailers that we thought were sort of impermeable, or if you think about sort of durability and stability of cash flow, you'd think it was pretty set. But if it was full of, you know, flower shops and hair salons and nail salons and things like that, they're all still closed, right? It's almost been the inverse. And you thought it was good because they were service oriented and not exposed to Amazon penetration, but apparently we were wrong. Yeah. Uh, any comment on that before we move on? Yeah, actually, no, I was just thinking about national tenants, right? And so you're meeting with your legal counsel, you're doing deals, you might have several leases with a national tenant and you know very strong financials. One of the things they might have negotiated was no security deposit, right? We got several leases with you, we don't want to do a security deposit. So guess what? What happened with this pandemic, once people were not paying rent, the first recourse that our clients had was to use a security deposit towards base rent, right? And they had more exposure with the national tenants all of a sudden, right? Where, you know, a corporation, maybe it's Starbucks, maybe it's Adidas, you know, came through and said, hey, we're not going to pay rent. And here's a letter from our council. And what's your options there? You know, do you do a default letter? Do you negotiate with them? And so we've heard just stories that are very interesting of the national tenants, the tactics they've taken with strong financial statements, right? And so... That's been you know, fascinating to me. And unfortunately, the mom and pop shops, that that's their livelihood, right? And they need that physical location. It's their business. It's where they you know, have their employees and they're making payroll. <laughs> and those guys aren't able to negotiate at that level. And so it's really kind of fascinating. And I think you know, moving forward, the landlord is going to have to think about how to structure these leases correctly and how to mitigate risk. Right. And what was strong rent roll revenue from national tenants? Is that still going to be looked at that way? Because now you have the legal challenges with those national tenants. And so something interesting to me that that, that kind of triggered. I would think that it's a byproduct of real estate being too good for too long. You know, I, I've been privy to, you know, a number of you know, lease negotiations and agreements of purchase and sale being put together. And a lot of the clauses that are meant to protect worst case scenarios are so easily discarded because the idea that something will go wrong seemed kind of foreign because why would it go wrong? It's been so right for so long. And, and maybe now there's a bit of a, a comeuppance in that regard. But to that theme, you mentioned future risk analysis. And so if you're, if you're, structuring deals now, or if you're looking at your portfolio now, you know, using your software, what kind of red flags would you catch in terms of future risk analysis? And what does it contemplate and protect you against, assuming you can get it into a, into a lease or an agreement of purchase and sale or, or any other documents that would contain that kind of language? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, one thing is just looking at what type of risk there is. And so I look at expense risk <laughs> and revenue risk, right? And kind of break those down. And the biggest challenge right now, I think, is the fluidity in the market, not really understanding what the future holds. In California, for example, we've kind of had a second wave, or at least we've had a second lockdown to prevent a second wave of the virus. And, you know, looking in mid-July, and everyone kind of thought that might have been October, right? But that impacts business. And so when you're a regional player in California, and 
there's another shutdown of business, like how do you properly evaluate that revenue risk for yourself? I think, you know, going into budgeting season this next month, <laughs> what's that going to look like? You know, and what sort of tools do our clients need to make the determination as far as what capital put in, into their, their properties for 2021? What sort of, you know, risk is going to be there? And what sort of potential challenges are there going to be? And I would say more than ever, really understanding your tenants is really the only thing you, you can control. I was on with a REIT and uh, a panelist, a retail REIT out of Arizona and Texas. And what she said, organization, what they were concerned with was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And really, that's how fluid it is right now. And so it's going to be a challenge. And I think what we have at Yardi is you operate on Yardi. We're going to have your revenue. We're going to have your expense information. We have that historical look. But then how do you kind of model potential scenarios? And I think it's an ABCD or whatever it might be to get in there and do proper operating budgets for 2021. So yeah, it's going to be challenging, but we're going to continue to evolve with our clients to hear what they're faced with. One conversation I actually had today, you know, because we put out something called Lease Manager, which basically helps you manage your kind of current rent role and have that risk evaluation, see the impact of your rent deferrals, et cetera. But the conversation I had with development today was like, we need that risk rating to flow through to our budgeting tool. So the folks that are you know, doing in the back office, working with leasing, working with asset management, trying to get up-to-date kind of assumptions or risk analysis to have those two connect. And so I think connecting that information is mission critical now, right? connecting leasing, connecting asset management, connecting to your budgeting folks, all with the same data, all with that same understanding of the of the customer and potential hits to your revenue. What is the prevailing sentiment right now? I mean, I guess I'm asking more from the American perspective, but maybe it's just so fragmented, it's impossible to summarize. I mean, I know in Canada, we're looking at our numbers, they, we've they gone up, they've come down, and we're teetering around sort of three to 400 a day, you know, out of 35 million people, whatever it is. There's a kind of, a, I can feel it. And Adam and I are fortunate enough to get to interview some of the sort of the leaders in our industry. And I mean, transactions are coming back. You know, we, we interviewed somebody that kind of runs a brokerage for land. Land transactions are coming. We know that apartment transactions are happening. Like, it feels like people are kind of, their expectation is that things are going to slowly transition back. COVID numbers are going to stay low. Everybody's practicing social distancing. Everybody's wearing a mask. Like, there's this optimism going on that we're going to get it back to, not the, back to normal, but maybe the next normal, but it's going to start feeling normal again. What are you feeling right now in, in the US with the way that things are transpiring? And maybe asking it from a real estate perspective, you're talking about budgeting. I would assume most Canadians are probably assuming their budget's going to be poor next year, but there's some optimism that maybe Q3, Q4 in 2021, things are rolling again. Is that same kind of, you know, 12-month horizon to being back to normal or is it further along? Like, what's that spectrum look like, right? Oh, yeah, it's a spectrum. <laughs> so yeah. I would say, you know, it depends on who you ask. And I can tell you, you know, we collect a lot of rent and we have, you know, access to kind of see that level of detail. And the impact from a pure rent collection standpoint isn't as much as we had anticipated, right? And we do kind of evaluations on, you know, the first through fifth of the month, kind of see how much rent is coming through our system. How does that look to, to last month, et cetera? And there hasn't been much variance, which I think is promising. I think the, the unknown is the injection of capital into the market. 
the printing of cash, if you will, to keep the economy going, was just reading something from Jamie Dimon, who's CEO of JP Morgan. And he wrote uh, an article at MSNBC, uh, I think this weekend it was, but he was very pessimistic as far as what the future looks like. And he was surprised that real estate prices are the way they are right now. There hasn't been huge impact. He's surprised that consumer confidence is there more than he thinks. And so they've put away a large amount of capital for defaulted loans, just looking out in the future. My sense, and this is, you know, of course not Yardi, but you know, we're in the early stages of this. And I think there's a lot to be determined in the future. So I think that we need to really focus on our business as far as collecting rent, understanding our customers, process efficiencies. But I think through the lens of we're going to invest in new technologies, this going to help us increase revenue, reduce risk, know our customers better, those sort of kind of key objectives of real estate operators and really look at all future investment, you know, current situation, be able to pivot quickly get more executive involvement. And so that's maybe one of the positive things that I've heard our clients really expressing that now executives are more reachable than before, right? And it's more of a collaborative effort. Everyone's on Zoom or on Teams meetings talking about what they're seeing, evolving their business. And I think in a lot of ways for commercial real estate, it's accelerated what should have been done before. And I would speak to that maybe from an IT perspective. And an example would be, you know, we're still writing checks you know, as an industry. We still have paper in our business. You know, we're still sending out paper invoices. And what this has done is it's challenged us because who's writing the checks, right? Where are those printers sitting? In a physical office? Or are they being dragged to someone's home office? When you're sending out vendor or tenant invoices or receiving vendor invoices, kind of where are those going? <laughs> and we could have done all this electronically before. And so that acceleration of that IT, the exposure of paper in your business, I think has been one major takeaway. This can have a very positive impact. And so I don't want to be doom and gloom. I think there's just a lot of unknowns, but there's a lot of, I think, really good, positive things. Adam, let me jump in before you go. I just want to add because I, it's, just, it's interesting and, it, and it's related to just my experience or our experience. We've been contemplating putting virtual signatures into our business for probably three years. Right? We've been talking to DocuSign and you know, any other those products, those software that allow you to do it. And it just never happened. And we kind of just kept going back burner, back burner. Work from home happened and we had the whole thing done in like eight business days, right? Like that quickly to every executive signing digitally, all documents signing digitally. And so it's amazing how it has sort of forced a lot of that positive transition. Sorry, Adam, go ahead. Well, yeah, on that same theme, you know, Aaron and I like to end off these podcasts by looking at silver linings. And for sure, that could be one of them, that it accelerates a lot of improvements in the industry that were, were long overdue. I mean, you know, on a personal note, every time I walk by a bank and see a lineup, my mind kind of is, you know, is blowing. I haven't set foot aside a bank in years because there's really no points. But I, I, unrelated to that, I, I did have a question. You know, you mentioned, you know, rent collection, deferrals. When Peter was on his episode earlier this year. He mentioned that one of the pivots you guys had to make was incorporating an element of your software to track all of the deferrals that people are now having to incorporate into their cash flows. And so now, of course, you have all these companies with all of these basically IOUs from some of their tenants that are tracked in the software. But any credit recovery company will tell you that the longer it goes unpaid, the probability of collecting it goes down. So do you have any visibility to 
how much of these IOUs are sitting out there? And does any of your future risk analysis contemplate some of that not being repaid? Yeah, yeah. Good question. What we've heard, you know, there was that first wave of we need help, right? All the tenants came in, chaos is going on, we can't pay rent. And say it was 200 tenants approached you. The final number of deferrals that we're kind of hearing, say it was 200, was maybe, you know, 25, 30 of those tenants actually qualified or went with a deferral. What we're hearing from our clients is they want to collect that quickly, right? And reduce that exposure. So maybe it was three months of deferred rent and they want that paid back in the next three months. Right now is that time when those are now due, right? Where it was probably April, May, June due July, August, September. So I think there's a little bit to be seen. What we did was provided a dashboard for the deferrals. So number of deferrals happening, number of tenants impacted. So you can see that exposure. We also track abatements. But then on the deferrals, if billed, meaning you know we're now billing for that, are they making good on those? That sort of business impact is what our clients were really looking for. And let's face it, deferral was kind of the commercial real estate and multifamily real estate word of the year. And so we really needed to address that to give our clients what they needed on that front. But yeah, I find it fascinating. And I think the future will tell, but there's certainly a lot of exposure out there. Brian, we always like to end these off on a positive note. And to fulfill that you know, obligation to our listeners, I want to ask you about adoption of 5G in real estate and how it's going to impact the new way that we are doing business. You know, I will admit that we've been remiss in not discussing 5G on this podcast, although you you know see it all over social media at, at a nonstop pace. So I think you'd be the perfect guest to comment on that, given you know the, the technology aspect that you're coming towards real estate with. Yeah, no, great question. And I'll start off by just saying 5G is happening. It's not a you know <laughs> something that's just out there. It it is 100% happening. We know that that's in motion. This pandemic is not slowing it. I would suggest this pandemic has accelerated it. And I'll give you a specific example or two. Thinking about the way we communicate. How many meetings did you have prior to March 2020 that were done with video conference? And I would suggest it was very little. All events have moved to a virtual platform. I think the folks that occupy your buildings, your tenants, your customers are going to have more of a need for low latency, high powered internet to support maybe hub and spoke office models, having remote teams, satellite office teams, urban teams that are maybe in lessly populated spaces or less dense. 5G is going to be a major impact of that. We need to connect in person. There's going to be less travel, more you know, conversations that will be happening on video. So what sort of infrastructure are you going to put in? And maybe it's an opportunity and a challenge you know, into your buildings to support that. When do you invest? And so I would have a lookout on that just and look for that because you know it's coming. Other things would be like robotics at the property level, you know, and that's going to take internet connection as well. And so maybe it's a robot going in, doing cleaning, touchless, right? That needs to be powered by infrastructure. And so tenant demands are going to be there. 5G is going to be a part of that. And when you're thinking about your capital planning and where you're going to invest in, make sure you have that on your radar. And it would be particularly impactful in Canada. We don't enjoy the same access to data and infrastructure that uh, you do in the States. Large parts of our country are you know, grossly underserved in that regards, but all our business is being done that way. You know, All our cell phone providers here uncapped data during the height of the pandemic, but of course, caps have gone back on. So it'll be interesting to see what usage is you know, going forward. But to, yeah, I, the mind boggles when you think about 
the improvements that 5G could bring. If anybody's interested, just Google it. And it's, it's seven steps forward from where we are now. And, you know, I personally am excited to embrace it. <laughs> and if you Google 5G, you'll probably also see videos of people tearing down towers. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> this is not a conspiracy podcast, so we won't get into that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I've certainly had the challenges at home just with my connection and internet and video going down and so forth. Outside of the common issue of not unmuting myself, I've done that probably a thousand times in the last uh, three months. So that's been my personal challenge. But yeah, I think 5G is a good thing, you know, and things gonna be good for operators to invest in this, to embrace it. And that tenant demand is there and tenants, you know, are going to really dictate some things that they want at the property level. So expect to see that in the future. Brian, I want to thank you for coming on today. It's great to get a perspective from somebody who's got a great view to the Canadian market, but you know, isn't necessarily fully intertwined in it the way a lot of our guests are. So the perspective from down south is much appreciated. And we want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank Real Estate Forums for introducing us to Brian. And of course, up next, we do have the after show. So stay tuned. But thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for your time today. Of course. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Great conversation. All right, well, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I kind of digest what we just talked about and offer insights, if any. It's such a weird interview with, that's our second one with the Yardi executive, because it's not necessarily, you know, we do regular interviews of, you know, brokers and leasing guys, and obviously senior leaders of major asset investors and sometimes lenders, but we never get sort of the accounting program side of things. I think it was really interesting, different different perspective, particularly coming from an American home and, and being American. You know, I found it. He wasn't willing to bite on my question about what's the sentiment. I was hoping he could say like, "This is crazy. It's going to last forever. Americans are, are nuts, <laughs> right?" But no, he didn't. He didn't go there. Well, yeah, I didn't want to ask, but uh, he did mention that he is recently back in lockdown. Not him personally, you know, the entire geographical area he's in, and you know, me hearing that is demoralizing to me. I couldn't imagine being in it. Adam's having a coughing fit. It's okay. We, we almost called this the Adam and Aaron Unplugged Show. So we'll just let this we'll let, just let this run, Joel. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it is scary to think that, you know, they opened up too early. I don't know if anybody follows the numbers, but it's, it is still, they're, they're, they appear to be on the rise still, right? If you think about, and you mentioned it, I think a while ago, early on, Canada and US kind of spiked together and we kind of peaked together and Canada came back down and the US kind of plateaued and then kept going. And I, I got a, my mother lives in California is back in lockdown and it's tough. I mean, that's got to be mentally draining just from a personal perspective, but from an eco- economic perspective. I mean, he did, I don't think he was really going to say like, yikes, we're going to see a lot more challenges as we go forward. However, he did say he thinks it's, we're in here this for the long run. And you got to imagine they're probably still eight, 12, 18 weeks from, you know, stage two, stage three, like we are already here in Ontario and Canada. Yeah. My thought when he's talking about that was, you know, if you're putting together budgets now and, you don't know if we're if things are just going to be up and up from here or if we're into a second wave and you're going to be locked down out of business again over the winter. I mean, it's got to be just a crapshoot trying to put together budget at this point. And the other thing that kind of occurred to me when we were talking is, you know, the future risk aspect of the software is pretty cool. I'm working on a deal right now where we've got a lease brand new 15 years and it's pegged to CPI. There's no other bumps in it other than just pegged to CPI. And it was written pre-pandemic, but there's a few different forecast for where inflation is going. But if there is a significant increase in inflation over the next couple of years, that lease being pegged to CPI is going to be gold. You know, it's, it's perfect. You know, these are kind of thoughts people never would have considered prior. I mean, very uncommon structure. 
Yeah. Well, and then back to your comment about, you know, just their forecasting and their risk analysis, it made me think about, you know, we didn't talk about it. We didn't really pick up on it, but I mean, their market penetration is, you know, over 50%. I think it's even higher in Canada, but to have sort of 40 something percent on the commercial side and 50 something percent on the residential side, and that's global penetration. So like, that's all real estate owners across the globe. Like that's insane for a business to have that kind of market share in anything you're talking about, right? So I think well on them and I have seen the platform and it's pretty slick, right? Like it's intuitive. There are a lot of different components to it, a lot of different functions and like the full suite basically does everything you need for for any accounting component of your business from rent roll analysis to rent collection, obviously deferrals, budgeting, like the whole nine. It is fantastic. And then the best thing is push a button out pops your operating statements, send them off to your accountant. Financial statements can be done quickly. Like I think it does make that side of your business way easier. Now I sound like a yardy salesman, but <laughs> they clearly have you know, 40, 50, 60% market share for a reason, right? So Use promo code Aaron when you <laughs> sign up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're welcome, Yardy. Yeah. <laughs> the other one, you're mentioning financial statements. The And we talked about it briefly, was the potential dip in CapEx that might mirror reduced incomes over the next year. And for the most part, you know, you see the CapEx expenditures are lumpy. I mean, you have different costs come along, but there's a general trend that you can put towards it. And it makes a very valid point. If you're going to have, you know, a bad 18 months here, when we're looking back at financial statements for deals we're trying to put together two years from now, you're likely are going to see a dip in major CapEx items and building condition assessments that estimate that you know, some of the repairs are now past due and need to be done. It's going to be, it's going to be a real issue going forward. The knock-on effect of this will be felt, even if we do get a vaccine shortly, will be felt for quite a while here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's early still. It's what, July 23rd or whatever the actual date is. And so what that means, that means four months we've been in this, four and a half months. And I mean, most retail places are still not really functioning. They're functioning maybe at 120th capacity, 130th capacity. So it's, there's still a long runway for things to get worse before they get better. And you're right. I don't, who knows what the implications are going to be when we start looking back on this in a year from now, let alone just four months in, right? So. Yeah. And Brian will be the first to know because the software will be showing it. And if we see him heading for the bunkers, we know it's uh, <laughs> not a great view from there. <laughs> yeah. Keep watching his LinkedIn profile. All of a sudden he works for Amazon. You know that uh, something, <laughs> something bad's coming. Yeah. Well, I think that's another after show, Aaron. Yep. Well done. Yep. Virtual high five. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.